Matthew chapter 5 is our passage today, verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rains on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, we pray today as we search the scriptures, as we seek to know you more, Lord, that you would speak to us through this time that you, Lord, would show us who we are, Father, even though it's convicting at times and even though it's really challenging. God, we're desperate for you. We're desperate for a move of your spirit in our lives and in this community, Father. And we know that through the power of your word, through anointed with the spirit, Lord, that lives are changed and communities are changed. And we're asking and inviting that here today. Lord, make the book live to us. Show us our savior. Show us ourself. Show us our sin, but show us salvation. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are a lot of definitions of what love is today in the world, and here are a few of them that I came up with just looking at some websites. Um, Love is not falling in love. Love is not happiness. Love is your dog. My dog is pretty cool, man. Love is not actually what you think it is. Love is a mirror for who we want to be. Love is insanity. Love is passion. Love isn't passion. Love is a game and, or life is a game, I'm sorry, and love is the trophy. Love is like an hourglass with the heart filling up as the brain empties. Love is the hardest habit to break and the most difficult to satisfy. That was Taylor Swift, right? Lots of definitions for love in the world. So you know what you know, young people do today if they have a question? What do you do if you're a young person and you have a question today? You sit down and you say, folks, let's get out the Bible together and search it together, and I want my parents to help me. That's what young people do today when they want an answer to something, right? No, they go to Dr. Google or Dr. YouTube, and they get all kinds of ministry um, from the Internet into their minds, and they become... Uh, you know, discipled by these sort of thought processes. And um, next thing you know, you don't understand your kid anymore, and it's because they've spent too much time on the couch of Dr. Google. And um, because there's stuff like this floating around out there, right? And um, how important it is to understand what Jesus says about love, what God says about love. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Just a little review. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you guys have heard that term. It's probably one of the most well-known portions of Scripture um, amongst Christians, amongst you know, unbelievers, humanists, seculars, everything. Everybody understands Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Now, 
it goes from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. So I don't know if, if your Bible has the red letters, but you look at chapter 5 to chapter 7, it's all red letters. It's pretty much Jesus you know, quotes through the whole thing. Now, we've been looking at a section within the Sermon on the Mount for about the last month, month and a half, right? And this section started off with this statement Jesus made in verse uh, 20 of chapter 5. Look at it there, if you would, please. It says, unless your righteousness, now when he says your, he's talking to his believers, he's talking to his followers. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, right? Because we talked about that the scribes and the Pharisees were like the religious professionals of the day. They prayed so everybody could see. They prayed long prayers, wordy prayers. They were on the streets making sure everybody noticed them. Every time they were fasting, they made sure everybody knew about that. They tithed everything in their life. Even out of their herb garden, they were the religious professionals. They wore the robes. They had all the rituals. And for Jesus to tell his people, his followers, that unless their righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, they will not go into heaven, that was a shocker because you'd look at these people and you'd say, they're the most righteous people ever. How can my righteousness exceed theirs? I'm never going to get into heaven. Well, Jesus then starts in verse 21 all the way you know, through verse 48, and he starts to talk about some common understandings of Scripture that were floating around in Jesus' day. The scribes and the Pharisees looked at the Old Testament laws. Um, you know, they took 632 laws out of the Old Testament, and they said, well, we live by these things. And the way that they thought the law was supposed to be was like, you could do this. Like, if you're really religious, you can do this. You can keep the Ten Commandments. You can do all this stuff. And that's how they viewed religion. And so they had this understanding of the law in such a way where if you weren't doing the things outwardly, then, you know, you were righteous. You weren't breaking them. I'll give you an example. As, as you remember, verse 21, you've heard that it said uh, that you shall not murder. Well, yeah, everybody's heard that. Don't murder. But Jesus says, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you've already murdered him. And so the, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been like, no, 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 no. I'm righteous. I've never, I've never murdered anybody. But Jesus says, yeah, but that's just externally. Inside, you're killing them with your thoughts. You're cursing them out. You're pulling up to the stoplight and somebody cuts you off and you're going, you're worthless, you stupid driver. Somebody should take away your license. You're doing that in your heart. Jesus says, as far as God's concerned, if, if that grows all the way out, that would be murder. So it's the same thing as far as God's seeing it. He looks at your heart. So when Jesus says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, what he's saying is as his followers, you have to have a sort of walk with the Lord that isn't just external, you know, show. It has to be heart level, right? And that's what he's been describing here through the last, um, you know, few months or a couple months. We've been just looking at these different sections. You know, he says, if you have anger in your heart, that's the same as murder. If you have ever lusted after somebody, that's the same as committing adultery as far as God sees it, right? If you've made oaths, um, you know, to deceive people. If you've said, you know, look, I swear to God, I won't do this, but then you end up doing it. All these things are sinful and God sees what's going on in the heart and he's exposed that. Um, and through this whole section, he's saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So he's kind of reinterpreting their understandings of the scriptures. He's, he's taken this phony religious veneer that all these people had 
And he's saying, God's actually looking at your heart, you know, not just, uh, you know, what's going on in the external. And so that brings us to uh, the law of love. Now he's going to reinterpret that. He did anger. He did lust. He did uh, taking sinful oaths. Now he's going to get to the subject of love. And let me just give you the main point that I want to draw out of here. God loves and cares for all humans, even his enemies. So as his people, we ought to do the same. That's the message today. You can take all those other definitions of love and, uh, well, we're going to look at God's definition. And God's definition of love even includes how he loves his enemies. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, so it's true righteousness part E, uh, love your enemies. Hey, E, E for enemies. Ah, is this a coincidence? All right, here's the outline. It's very simple. Jesus is going to drive this point home by, first of all, giving a correction. Uh, Then we're going to talk about reflection. And then he's going to summarize the whole section from verse 20 all the way through. And he's going to talk about how God's standard is absolutely perfection, nothing less than perfection. So correction, he's going to correctly interpret the law of love. Then reflection, he's going to talk about how when we love our enemies, we're actually a reflection of the love of God. And then he's going to summarize all of it with this statement uh, that says that, you know, God's standard for his people is absolute perfection. And we'll talk about what that means when we get there, because that's kind of a terrifying statement if you're paying attention and tracking along. Okay, so correction, look at verse 43. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You have heard it said. So you have to remember the people in this day didn't have Bibles. They couldn't go read them for themselves. So they were dependent solely on what the religious people, the rulers told them, right? And so he says, you have heard it said. In other words, when you're in the synagogue, you have heard the teachers saying this. And, uh, but they didn't have the you know, tremendous privilege of going and checking out to see. By the way, I like it that you come to church here. Some of you have Bibles, some of you don't. I like it when you check what's in the Bible to be sure that what I'm saying is what the Bible's saying. It's called being a good what? Does anybody know? A good Berean, right. So you should be checking out what's in the scripture if you want to, you know, take my word for it. You, hopefully you can, but you should also want to study the scriptures for yourself. It's a tremendous privilege. People have died so we could have a Bible, you know. Um, Americans need to be reminded of that, don't we? Okay, so he says, you shall, you've heard it said that we shall love your neighbor. And now that's true. That's a command from the Pentateuch, which um, is also called the Law of Moses. It's the first five books of our Bible. It's called the Law. Now, does anybody know? Who knows what book that's from? You shall love your neighbor. Yell it out real loud. You know it. Leviticus, right? Our favorite book. Everybody loves Leviticus. That's where you shall love your neighbor came from. Did you know that? Well, you do now. No, Erin knew that back there, but she's trying not to be like, oh, I'm the pastor's wife, and oh, it's all that stuff. <laughs> all right. It's Leviticus 19.18, uh, to be exact. Now, this term, neighbor, um, our English word, you know, you know the Bible's written in Greek, and it's translated into English. So this English word, neighbor, it's, it has the idea of nigh, bore, like, you know what nigh means? Like, you know, close. Yeah, hey, come nigh to me. You know, that's how I talk to my wife, by the way. I'm like, wife, come nigh. You know, and then she's like, you better don't. What? And then, uh, you know, no, I don't ever talk like that. But I might, you know, just go ahead and take this stuff and you can apply it to your life. You know, this pastor taught us what nigh meant today. Okay. That's what a neighbor is. 
Now, when you look at the Greek word translated neighbor, it has a simple definition. It just means close in proximity. So the question would be, you shall love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? It's anybody that's close to you. The Bible's definition of who your neighbor is, is anyone that's close. Now, the Jews in this day believed that the only neighbor that they had were other Jews. Now, does that sound like people in 2021? Who's your neighbor? Well, people that think like me, act like me, do the same stuff I do, believe the same things I do. Those are my neighbors, right? Well, Jesus had a different definition. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? You guys know how that works? The guy got beaten up. He's down on the side of the road for dead. Here comes a priest, walks right by him, doesn't have anything to do with him. Levite gets a little better. He looks at him, but still doesn't do anything. But then comes a Samaritan, which the Jews hated. And the Samaritan mends up his wounds, takes care of him, takes him to the the hostel or the hotel, essentially, and he pays for him to stay there while he gets all mended up. And then Jesus says, which one acted like a neighbor? And then the Jews would just hate to admit it, but, you know. So who is my neighbor? You've heard it say, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. Love the person that's close to you, right? It's not just the person next door. It's anybody that's close to you that's in need. That's your neighbor. But you've heard that and hate your enemy, right? Notice the next part there, verse 43. You've heard it said, uh, you know, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, Love your neighbor, Leviticus 19.18. Hate your enemy, nowhere, nowhere, right? Not in the Bible. Now, that was a Pharisaic addition. Now, here's how they justified it. They said, well, anybody that's not a Jew is obviously an enemy of God, so for us to mistreat everybody else except for the Jews, we're just being tools of God's judgment. Sound like anybody else in 2021? Maybe like the Westboro Baptist Church? Sounds like people today, doesn't it? So that was not found anywhere in the Bible. Jesus says, hey, you know, you've heard it said to love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I say to you, and that's what's coming next. By the way, love your neighbor but the addition of hate your enemy. Isn't it scary what can happen to God's word when man changes it and nobody searches it for themselves to figure out the truth. Isn't that dangerous? That's a bad example of that. <laughs> you took love, your neighbor, which the definition is everybody, anybody close to you, and you, and you somehow added on hate your enemies? Dangerous. That's what happens when People don't search the scriptures for themselves. You know, they don't have access or they don't understand or they're just too lazy. Verse four, uh, 44, here's what Jesus says. Love your enemies. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Now, Jesus corrects the misunderstanding of the law. He brings them the true understanding. This is the correction. You've heard it say to hate your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies. Now, this isn't a new concept, right? This isn't something that the Old Testament did not teach, right? You guys know Proverbs 25, 21? If your enemy's hungry, do what? Give him bread, right? If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In so doing, you will what? You'll heap hot coals on his head. I always used to think, oh, yeah, we'll burn him by doing something good. Well, no, no, when you study that, it's actually a good thing. It's kind of like putting a hot water bottle on somebody that needs, you know, like, a, like, you'll put a heating pad on them, you know what I mean, when they've got cramps or something like that. You're helping them by doing it. 
So it's not a new concept. Now, the word love, though, it's important for us to define that. We've already looked to the world a little bit. We didn't find any help from Taylor Swift, um, well-meaning as I'm sure she is. The word here in the Greek that's translated into English as love is the word agape. Who's heard agape before? You guys know that word? Yeah, amen. A lot of hands. Now, agape is goodwill and benevolence of God shown in self-sacrifice and unconditional commitment to a loved one. It's a lot of syllables. Let me read it again. Goodwill and benevolence of God shown in self-sacrifice and unconditional commitment to a loved one. It's unconditional. It's self-sacrificing. Agape love is not the sort of love that is responsive and reactive. It's, in, other words, in other words, it doesn't, agape love doesn't come because somebody's lovable, right? You might think, well, I'm pretty lovable, so no wonder God loves me. Look at, look at me. I'm here in church. He's got to love me, right? Well, agape love has nothing to do with the worthiness or deservedness of the one that is being loved. Nothing to do with it. God has chosen to love you, to love me, to love his world, for God so loved the world. God has chosen to do that just because he wants to. That's it. And you say, well, I'm not lovable. I don't deserve this. Well, let me tell you this. That doesn't even enter the equation. It has nothing to do with your worth or deserving or anything like that. God just loves you because he loves you. That's what it says here, that you shall love your enemies, not have feelings for them. This is why this is hard to understand. Some people say, well, how can I, how can I love my enemies? Man, this pastor is putting an unbelievable burden on us today. He's telling me that I have to have feelings for somebody that has molested me. He's telling me that I have to have feelings for somebody that while I was sleeping, stole my money. No, if you understand the definition of agape, that's not what that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. Agape is not a feelings-based love. It is a choice to act in the best interest of somebody else. It's a choice. It's unconditional. It's self-sacrificing. So when Jesus says that you're to love your enemies, he's not saying you have to feel something great for them, right? By the way, just a comment on this. This is why so many marriages tank right here because people don't bring in agape into the marriage. They don't agape their spouse. They're looking for eros, erotic love. Well, I don't feel erotically you know, attracted to my wife anymore because you know, gravity's you know, set in and that happens to all of us. And so you know, I, I don't have any love for my wife anymore. I don't have any feelings for her because she doesn't look like I want her to anymore. I don't, I'm not sexually attracted to her. So it's time to get divorced. You know, that's, that's how people look at it. Well, I just, they say, here's the, here's the thing. By the definition of agape, true or false, you can fall out of love. False. There's no such thing as falling into agape. It's a choice, right? You can't fall in and out of love. I'm falling in and out of love with my spouse, and now I think we need to go to a marriage counselor and get divorced. Well, you never agaped them if that's, you know, if that's where you're basing your decisions. You're, you haven't brought God's love into your marriage. That's why marriages fail. Marriages succeed when both people are committed to agape, not eros, not some other kind of love, right? 
If you want to read more about love, uh, read C.S. Lewis' The Four Loves. I've read um, parts of it and uh, you know enough to recommend it. Good book. Talks about love. But you haven't brought agape in if uh, you could fall in and out of it. Now, what Jesus is saying is he's not saying to have nice, warm feelings towards your enemy. But as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, don't be so concerned about loving your enemy or your neighbor. Just love them. And then you'll start to find that you start to have feelings for the person afterwards. See, God's, God's plan is to take an enemy and turn him into a friend, you know, and do that by agape love, right? That's what Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about when he says love is the most powerful force in the world. He was, uh, you know, a pacifist. He was not going to commit violence. He was going to continue to love people, even though uh, that they were returning hate for love. He was doing what Jesus said, and that's why it was so impactful because, you know, I can't even think of too many people more that I know that have actually applied this in such a grand, large way, you know, as, as MLK Jr., right? So... It's important to understand um, Jesus isn't talking about feelings. He's talking about agape, the choice to self-sacrifice for them. So you're saying, great, this sounds good. I'm convicted. I haven't been loving my enemies, and I want some examples of how to do it. Well, good. Go on here. Look at this. It says, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, the first thing I want to point out about these three things that Jesus lists here. These are not sentiments. They're not feelings. These are actions, right? Now, oftentimes as a Christian, I am so guilty of hearing something like this and just going, yeah, yeah, love my enemies. I do that, you know? And, you know, you'll hear some, you'll go to church and you'll hear some words out of the Bible. Jesus will say something, you know, through his word to you. Something like, love your enemies, and you'll sit here and go, yeah, that's great. Love my enemies. I do that. Well, let me point out the fact here that these are actions. These are positive actions. If, if I'm going to bless somebody that curses me, that doesn't mean that I am simply just not retaliating, does it? Jesus doesn't just say, roll with it and just get away from them. That's not what he says. He says, bless them. Now, the word bless is where we get our word eulogy. Does everybody know what a eulogy is? You're at a funeral, and Uncle Harry, he was so great, and I just I love him. It's the way that he used to, you know. It's a eulogy. You're saying something good about somebody. It's a eulogy. So when Jesus says bless, he's saying, say good things about. This is a positive action. Jesus is not just saying, roll with it when somebody hurts you and just, you know, turn the other cheek and forgive them. That's not all he's saying. He's saying, do something. Take an action. You know, when you're in that conversation and somebody starts talking about the person that abused you, okay, <laughs> I know that's a heavy-duty thing. I get it. How do you talk about that person? Well, Jesus would give you some advice here, and he would say, as his follower, what he wants you to do is he wants you to bless them. <laughs> you, know? you say, I can't do that. I don't know. It's, well, it's not a choice of feelings. It's a choice of the will to do such things, you know. Somebody has hurt me. I'll tell you, uh, we've all in this room been hurt, right? And we've all in this room hurt people. But what Jesus says to us today is possible. You know the good thing about the Bible that has gotten me through a lot is to understand that God, being good and being all wise, would never ask me to do something that I could not do in the power of his Holy Spirit. 
Amen? Anybody agree with that? Anybody ever been through that? God's not going to ask you to do something, command something of you that he wouldn't empower you to do. Now, that's a positive action. Bless somebody. Take action. Don't just say, well, you know, I, I love my enemies. Yes, yes, I do. Oh, really? Well, where's the positive action toward them? Now, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you. That is, um, you know, the one point I just want to draw out of that is these are positive actions. Jesus isn't just saying be passive to people that have hurt you. There's a good example of it in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And you remember as Jesus, you know, was hanging on the cross, that he said um, probably some of the most profound, you know, life-changing statement in the whole Bible. As he's there, he's been falsely accused, beaten, and, and everything that you know that he went through. And he's hanging there and he says, and just think about this. They killed him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They killed him, but he says, Father, forgive them. Notice this goes, this goes way past simple non-retaliation. I guess I shouldn't say simple. It's, that's not all that simple. But it goes beyond non-retaliation. The purpose of doing, you know, this is purposefully doing actions of love. I'm afraid that there are so many Christians today, and myself included at times in my life, that simply say stuff like, oh, yes, that's very true. We need, to, we need to love our enemies. While they don't even go anywhere near anybody that doesn't agree with them, you know. And while they sit and they point fingers at other groups that don't believe like they do, and they hang out with other Christians and they just get in a huddle and they talk about how Christian they are and how, how this world is so bad. This world is so terrible. It's just going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, Lord Jesus, bring your judgment upon people. And they just stay isolated from everybody. But Jesus, if he says that you are to take positive actions of good towards your enemy, you have to go around them, <laughs> don't you? I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating for a minute, you know, some dude beat you up and saying, go over to his house and take him cookies. I'm not saying that. But you have to understand the concept here. You have to understand the principle, the heart of what Jesus Christ is saying. We're not going to make any impact in this world so long as we stay isolated and just pretend like we do these Christian statements. We say, oh, yeah, love your enemies. Yeah, I do that. I, I do that just simply because... I don't even have any enemies. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. No, Jesus is saying make an impact in this world by doing good to those that would do you harm. You know? The Christian community should be known as the most loving group of people on the planet. Now, some reflection here. This is the next part. So correction, uh, you know, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies, wrong. Every man, woman, regardless of race, economic status, religious affiliation, you know, sexual identity, all people are your neighbor, and you are, in fact, to commit acts of love to those that hate you and hate Christianity. You are to be loving with a divine, self-sacrificial love to those that are hostile towards you and Christianity in general. Now, reflection. In loving your enemies, we reflect the love of God. Look at verse 45. That you may be. He says, love your enemies, that you may be, right? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, if you do this, if you show love to those that would do you harm, you will be acting as true children of your Father 
in heaven. In other words, you know, they say he's a chip off the old block, right? He's, he's showing the family resemblance. When you do good, when you take positive steps of action, of love to those that are hostile towards you in Christianity, you look like your daddy. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all of his works. If you choose to act in love to your enemies, you are being like God. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So he's, Jesus gives him some reasoning. He's saying, if you love your enemies, you'll be like God. Well, well, why? Tell me about how God loves his enemies. Well, let me give you an example. He makes his son. Did you notice that little word there by, the, by chance? Look at how Jesus talks about creation right there. This is a totally rabbit trail. This is a total aside. But look at how Jesus Christ talks about creation. Whose son is it? It's God's. And he makes even his son to shine on the evil and on the good. You ever think about that before? Uh, think of a farmer. The farmers are probably stoked today, right? Uh, you know, think about that. Like, finally got some rain. I mean, wow, we needed that. Farmers are probably stoked. Somebody's, I was thinking about, this is a total another rabbit trail. I was praying the other day, God, make it not rain because I'm painting my house. And then God convicted me. He goes, but there's farmers praying right now for rain. So, you know, who am I to listen to here? I'm like, oh, well, me, I'm a pastor. That's foolish, right? Foolish. See the, see the depth of folly in man, even religious men, right? But he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. The, so think about this. There's a farmer out there praying for rain, and, and you know, there's some that are not even praying for rain. They don't think that there is a God or anything, All that, but now their crops are growing because there's rain and there's sunshine coming on both of those. But God doesn't discriminate in who he gives to, does he? God's not discriminatory. He's not going around knocking on doors and saying, you know, are you gay? Because if you're gay, I'm not going to rain on your field. You know? Oh, are you a Muslim? Because if you're Muslim, no sunshine for you. You know what I mean? This is heavy stuff to think about. Well, I'm a drag queen that does story hour down at the public library. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. Now, by loving those that don't agree with you or look like you or act like you or think like you or believe like you, you are being like God. So the implication is the reverse is true. If you are not being loving to those that don't look like you, act like you, think like you, and believe like you, you are not being like God. You are not being like Jesus Christ. You are being sinful, you are in a place where repentance is your next step. You're out of the will of God if you're treating others with disdain because they don't think, look, act, believe, worship, and serve like you. It's a big challenge for us as humans in fact, Jesus gets to it in verses 46 through 47. Here's the challenge. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? 
Now, that is our inclination, is to love those that love us. You know, these people that I hang out with, they're just brilliant. Why is that? Well, they chose to hang out with me. They must have something good going for them. <laughs> you know what I mean? My little clique. We're so smart. We all believe the right way. We've got the right theology. That's why we're all such good. We're such good people because we all have the right theology. Is good theology important? Yes. Should it be a source of pride where you alienate and go isolate from the world that God's called you to help? No. We belong to the right denomination. Hey, if you love others that love you, uh, you know, what reward have you? Then he goes on to say, don't even the tax collectors do the same? Now, don't get the wrong idea about tax collectors. This is something you have to understand is in this day, tax collectors were corrupt and they took money from people that did not belong to them. And um, it was a corrupt industry. So don't think of this, you know, don't go into H&R Block with your Bible and you, you know, you work for the tax collector, you know, like don't, you get audited, you know. That was a huge insult in that day. That if you were like a tax collector or a Gentile, Jews, that was the deepest insult you could give to them, right? If you love those that love you. Now, there are some that are not even good at that. But for most people, this is the natural inclination. And look at verse 47 and tell me this does not apply. You know, some people think the Bible isn't relevant. Tell me this isn't relevant. If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? You know, you can see that during the greeting time in a church. You can see the same people always talking to the same people. God forbid you can see it in a church even this size, you know. For the longest time, you couldn't see it, right, Molly? Because there was like five of us, you know, for about, you know, however many years. Everybody greeted everybody because everybody was serving. And everybody was looking out the window like, is anybody coming? And, and then, uh, you know, so everybody greeted everybody. But, oh, man, we knew the day was coming, right, when, when it would start to get, you know, from pioneers to settlers, right? We knew this was coming. And now it's that point to where somebody's got to stand up and remind you, if you greet only your brethren, what do you do more than anybody else? You know, what's being said here is to love people that love you is nothing commendable in the eyes of God. That's normal. What is commendable is when you, by an act of the will, choose to agape somebody else, others, people you don't even know. People that, you know, how many times have you been to church here where somebody comes in from your past and you go, oh, that person wronged me in the past. That's happened to people here. I remember one time we were up at the North End Church with Ken, and this dude came in to go to church one Sunday, and he had totally beat me down and ripped me off, stole my car. Didn't even remember who I was. Didn't even know, man. You know, methyl. Weird things to you. And I said, Lord, you want me to love this guy? I was the pastor. Like, oh, my goodness, you know. What a lesson. Yeah. He's a sweetheart of a dude. I went back to prison, but it's too bad. If you greet your brethren only, what more do you what do you do more than others? Look at that, look at that verse right there, look at that part of that verse. Just th- those words right there. What do you do more than others? The implication is that you should, that I should do more than others. That's the inference, right? Jesus is inferring that as his followers, you should do more than others when it comes to love. 
right? Some people are great at loving their family, but when it comes to loving their church family, not so great, you know? And they'll think things like, well, that's my family. Well, Jesus would say to you, if you love your family only, what do you do more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Don't Satanists do that? Everybody does that. In fact, dogs even greet dogs by sniffing each other. Right? Dogs have more courtesy than a lot of people, don't they? This is heavy duty. What do you do more than others? That's really the question. Now, finally, Jesus concludes this section. Now, if you have not been convicted through the Sermon on the Mount, well, just read verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect. You shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is one of the most unsettling statements in the Bible. This verse has driven people crazy, right? Um, What do you mean be perfect, Jesus? That's the question. What does he mean by this? Well, let's look at a few terms just to kind of get our bearings here. Where it says, therefore, who knows what you ask when you see the word therefore? What's it there for? And you guys. All right, Bible students here. Cool. What's it there for? Oh, well, it's a term of conclusion, right? He's concluding things. Therefore. Now, based on what Jesus has just said regarding murder, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, non-resistance, going the extra mile, loving your enemies, considering all that, you, therefore. Now, the word you in the Greek language is emphatic. So you know what that means. You would read it like this. It wouldn't say, therefore, you shall be perfect. It's therefore, you shall be perfect. You is emphatic, right? So Jesus is directing it at them. It's a word of conclusion. Now the word shall be, important to understand in the Greek tense, this is present tense. Now what does that tell us? That what Jesus is saying, shall be, means that this is present tense. This means this is to be the ongoing goal throughout life of the Christian. Shall be. It's not you will be this one thing at a certain time, it will happen, and that's it. That's a different tense. This is the tense of, you know, the way that it's used is it should be the ongoing, continuous thing of the Christian. So we know those things so far. Therefore, you shall be perfect. Now, the word perfect, immediately what comes to our mind, um, you know, that's a weird term, right? A lot of people think, well, I'm not perfect. You know, I've got my, I don't like my nose. I don't like my ears. I don't like my, I'm not perfect, or I got 90% instead of 100 That's definitely a definition of perfect, you know, like that sort of way of looking at it. But this word here in the Greek is the word teleos, T-E-L-I-O-S. And what it means in this context is to be mature, to be complete, to be whole. It means to live up to the purpose that which something has been created for. Um, Example, a child, when it becomes adult, is teleos. It's achieved the purpose that it was created for. So what Jesus is saying is you shall be, therefore you shall be mature, you shall be complete, you should be whole, you shall live up to the purpose that you were created for. That's what he's getting at, okay? Now, some different interpretations. There are quite a few. I've read so many of them this week that it's like commentators are all over the place on this. what this actually means. They all have a common thread, but I'll give you some. First of all, what this does not say. Some like John Wesley used this. You're familiar with John Wesley? You know, you've heard of the Wesleyan Church? Okay. 
The Wesleyan Church, a Nazarene Church, and different Methodist, early Methodist Church, Nazarene, um, Wesleyan churches teach a doctrine called sinless perfection. Or, um, you know, essentially what it states is that you can achieve a place of being perfect morally in this life. Now, he used this verse. Now, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Let me read this verse to you. And I want you to, I want you to ask yourself the question, can this, you be perfect as your heavenly father, can it mean that you are to be sinless? Let's read 1 John 1, 8. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Do you remember when Paul said, I am the chief of sinners? If the Bible in other areas says that it is impossible to become sinless in this life, can this verse in Matthew then, by good biblical interpretation rules, can it mean sinless perfection? Not unless the Bible contradicts itself, which I don't believe that it does. So... That's one possible interpretation. I think we can rule that one out because there's all kinds of verses talking about how, you know, and I just read one and Paul talks about another and so on. So anytime you run into a verse that seems to contradict something else in the Bible, you need to be really careful, you know, and you need to understand that verse in context. You can't ever hike a verse out of the context of the whole Bible to try to make it make sense. That's bad hermeneutics. It's bad biblical interpretation. False teachers do it all the time. They do it all the time. Why? Because people don't research what they're saying, and they don't look in the Bible and find out what, you know, uh, you know, all things are possible with Jesus Christ, even a Mercedes. Just go ahead and give the money to me. If you sow fivefold, it'll come back a hundredfold. It says it in the Bible. You know. No, it doesn't. <laughs> How do you know? Because I read the Bible. <laughs> you know, it's simple enough. So I don't think it can mean sinless perfection. Now, here's another one could be referring to the future state. Jesus is saying, you shall be perfect. In heaven, you shall be perfect. Based on what I said about the Greek language, why do we rule that one out? Present tense. Good. Sunday school teacher. Ah, no, that's good though. Exactly right. We have to rule that out too because shall be, it's not the sort of tense of where he's saying a future event that's going to happen. It's continuous. It's right now. It's all the time. That's the way that shall be is used. Good. Um, some say that being perfect is to be looked at only in the immediate context. The immediate context, in other words, meaning uh, if you love your enemies, then you are um, perfect as far as God says. You know, if you're complete. God even gives love to his uh, people that love him and the people that hate him. And if you'll do the same, then you're complete. Now, I think that that makes some good sense. If I wanted to be very conservative in my hermeneutics, that's what I would say. Is I would say, you know, it, it's just applying to the thing that's just right before it. Since we see a common theme through verse 21 all the way through 48, um, and then chapter 6 changes the whole focus, a lot of commentators see it as a summary statement to, you know, to take in verse 21. All that's, you know, you shall not. Um, in, in other words, like this. If you um, want to be perfect, um, you know, if you want to be mature, complete, well, God doesn't murder, you know, so he doesn't have anger in his heart. God doesn't lust, so don't have lust in your heart. God, you know, be complete in these things. Be whole in these things, right? Now, 
you remember right in the beginning when we got in the Sermon on the Mount, I told you that the Sermon on the Mount isn't the way to be saved, right? It's not how to get to heaven. It's how saved people are to behave. And that's important to understand when you're interpreting uh, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You remember in verse 20, your righteousness must exceed that of the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. Okay, yikes, right? By how much? Well, you need to be perfect, just like God. To get into heaven, you have to have perfect righteousness to get into heaven. That's it. There's only one way that people come into heaven, and that's when they have perfect righteousness. Why? Because God's perfect, heaven's a perfect place, anything less than perfect doesn't go into heaven. Simple. So Jesus, you mean that I must never hate because it's the equivalent of murder? I must never lust in my heart because that's adultery in your eyes? I must never uh, say more than yes or no by swearing oaths? I must turn the other cheek when being attacked? I must bless those who seek to do me harm, never slander, never retaliate, love all people indiscriminately, perfectly, completely? Yes, Jesus is saying, if you want to try to get into heaven by your own works and your own behaviors, yes, you need to do all of these things perfectly. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus, what you're saying is impossible, right? No matter how good I may look on the outside at times, I'm sunk, I'm corrupt on the inside. You say I must be perfect. Well, I can't do that. You're right. So now all your attempts to earn your way into heaven by your works are destroyed, right? Definitely. I can't get in there by being a good guy, you know? Now you're driven to the grace of God. Now you're driven to forgiveness. Now you're in a place to understand why you need to be forgiven. When Jesus lays all this out and at the end of it he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now you're understanding your need for forgiveness. Right? You're right. This is right where Jesus wants you. Now he will come and take up residence in your life and he'll help you live as you ought to live in his kingdom. He'll forgive you all, all of all your sin and he will begin the process of making you into his image from the inside out and one day he will bring it all to completion, and you will be spotless before the throne. Soon we will see Jesus face to face. He's coming back, and the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that when we see him, we will be like him. And hallelujah. Hopefully that day comes soon. So when Jesus says to be perfect, there's a couple of things you have to understand. You need to have the perfect righteousness of Christ given to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the what? The righteousness of God in him. When I put my faith in Jesus Christ, two things happen. Two things. One of them's a negative and one of them's a positive. The first thing that happens when I put my faith in Jesus Christ is a negative. I'm forgiven of my sin. All my sin washed away. He washed it white as snow. Uh, you know, praise the Lord past, present, future, forgiven from all the penalty of my sin was laid on Christ at the cross. And when I place my faith in Jesus, God the Father says, okay, what my son did at that cross, now it applies to you. The penalty is gone. You're free. You're free and clear. Hallelujah. We're free at last, right? Now that's the first part. That's a negative. So something has been taken away from me. My whole record of sin. I got a big record. All gone. Negative. Take it away. Now here's something that's positive that was done when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. It's called imputed righteousness. That's what the theologians call it. Imputed righteousness means that when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father, the good judge, he says, I am willing to take the perfect record of my son, Jesus Christ, and I'm willing to apply that to your account. 
I'm willing to take Jesus' flawless, sinless, perfect record. He was made in all points like we were tempted at all points, but yet without what? Yet without sin. So God the Father is willing to take Jesus' perfectly spotless record and apply it to you and apply it to your life. Two things happen when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Your sin is washed away, but you've also gained this positive record of perfect righteousness. That's what it means when it says, he who made, he made him sin, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of him in Christ. Right? So we have a righteous, positive standing. God sees you as righteous today because he sees you in the righteousness of Christ. You say, I don't feel righteous today. I mean, I'm still messed up and jacked up in sin. I know, isn't that a great blessing that God decides to see you as righteous? Isn't that a great blessing? You know, people go around and say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I, I don't even use that terminology anymore. I say, I'm a saint, man. <laughs> I'm set apart from that old life. I'm nothing to do with a sinner anymore as far as God sees. What God sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ when he looks at me. He sees me in Christ. He says, you know, let me look around for Adam Tyler. Let me see his record. Oh, oh there's his record. Perfection. <laughs> Ooh, blessed, hallelujah, that's so good. Jesus says you need to be perfect. You need to have the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way anybody's going to stand before God. How do you receive that? By putting your faith in Jesus Christ. He forgives you of your sins and he gives you a righteous standing. Now, there's a second element that we need to be sure that we don't forget. Because Jesus alone is the only one that could meet this standard of perfection, and through faith, we're, you know, God's willing to see us with that perfection. It doesn't mean that we give up trying to pursue perfection, right? Very simple illustration. If I had a kid, I would tell my kid, I would say, I want you to go to school, and I want you to do your best. I want you to get good grades. I, you know, I want you to get 100% on all your tests. That's what I desire for you, right? Now, if my kid came home with, you know, you know some Ds on it, I would be like, Okay, you know, there'd be a whole conversation. We need to figure out a plan and stuff like that. And I would give the child grace. But I wouldn't say, it looks like my kid's a D performer. So, you know, let's just go ahead and just drop the standard down to D. You know, let's just drop it. Oh, come on, kid, throw some Ds on it. It's fine, you know. I wouldn't do that. I would keep the standard still. No, no, you know what? We're going to learn and you're going to get better as you're going. And through my work into you that I'm going to pour into you is going to go in and through you. You're going to get better as you're going. That's how the Christian life, you know, sort of works. Yes, God sees me as perfectly righteous, as perfectly obedient, and I can't do any better than that. I have a righteous standing. I can't improve my salvation. But I'm also, while I'm here in this life, the Holy Spirit is working, making me more like Jesus Christ all the time. So I should be growing in, you know, I should be less angry. I should be less lustful. I should be, you know, my word should be better. I should be better at turning the other cheek and loving my enemies and things like that. I should be growing in these things. I don't throw out the perfect standard because I can't meet it, right? Christians aren't exempt from what Jesus says here. Live perfectly. Make this your, on, your ongoing goal. He doesn't, he doesn't exempt us from that standard. But praise God that as we have failed, he forgives us and he makes up for that. Do you guys understand what I mean? Have you ever heard, uh, you know, aim for the cloud, you know, shoot for the stars, hit the clouds? That's, that should be the Christian mindset. My goal is to be nothing less than perfect. I want that. Now, you can ask my wife. I'm pretty close. <laughs> Not at all, right? 
But that is my goal. Every single day, my goal is nothing less than Christ in me. Nothing less than that. That's who I want to be. I want to be like Jesus, man. Have you ever found anybody else that you want to be like? Oh my gosh, who's like him? Who is like you, Lord? I want to be like him every day of my life. I don't ever want to sin again in my life. I want to be perfect. I hate sin. I hate it. It defiles my life. It ruins things. It hurts people. Oh, I hate my sin. Oh, perish the thought, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Aim at this. Aim at Christ in you. The hope of glory, right? His Holy Spirit, when you put your faith in him, his Holy Spirit comes in your life, right? And lives in you. And then you ask him, you say, Lord, baptize me in your spirit. Put the power of the Holy Spirit upon me in my life. And that spirit, you know, helps you and empowers you. And you have new desires and you change and you become more like Christ day after day. And you keep aimed at that perfection. You see, God doesn't lower his standard because man can't meet it. He never does that. God says the standard to stand before me is absolute perfection. And so I need to be covered in the perfection of Christ to stand before him. His life is living inside of me, so I become more and more like him, right? So leave here today with, you know, your, your biggest role model in life should be Jesus Christ, <laughs> to be like him. Now, I want to conclude today here by saying, you know, some of you may be thinking that you don't have enemies, and that's a great thing. Maybe you don't have anything against anybody, but I want you to know quickly uh, that things are heating up against the church in this country. And you might not have anything against anybody, but let me tell you this, and I'm not trying to be a weirdo, uh, but people have something against you, right? Just because you believe in male and female marriage, there are people that hate you just because you believe that marriage was created by God and it's for a man and a woman. There are people that hate that. There are people that hate the fact that you believe that divorce is like, you know, not the way the world sees it, right? There are people that hate you because you believe that Leviticus belongs in the Bible. There are people that are mad at you that are working diligently. And might I say, more diligently than a lot of Christians are to take this away from you, to take the word away from you, to take church as you know it away from you. Cause, you know, you might not think that you have enemies, but there are people that are not thrilled about you. Now, how are you going to respond? Right? Are you going to get fearful and keep retreating and keep you know, developing opinions and keep taking people and reducing them to caricatures of people, just two-dimensional people? Oh, those leftists. Oh, are you going to be one of those kind of Christians that makes those comments about those leftists? Are you going to do stuff like that? Because that's not Christ-like at all to label people and to put people into groups and to make them into character, two-dimensional images of people. That's what we like to do as people. We like to cast our shadow onto some group. We always have to have somebody to demonize. Is that what you're going to do? Because the Bible says, Jesus says that in end times, hearts are going to grow cold because sin is going to get rampant. Now, is your heart cold? Because it's going to get worse according to the Bible. I'm not trying to be a doom and gloomer. It's not doom and gloom. It's, it's written. It's written. Who are you going to be like, right? I want to conclude with this. Love your enemies. This calculated attack happening on this country daily 
is they have the goal of erasing Christian influence, right? There is the goal. Here's the narrative. Because of Christianity, slavery, um, sexism, racism, all that stuff came from white Christians, and this country was founded on that stuff, so we've got to erase it. That is going on in this country right now. Nothing could be, you know, well, maybe there's some, you know, elements of truth in what people are saying. You know, I don't know. I mean, slavery was a terrible thing in this country, and people used God, you know, to justify it. And there's some, been some terrible things that happened, but Jesus Christ, you know, uh, doesn't condone any of those things. But I will tell you, there are people that work to destroy Christianity in this country. It's happening right now. You might not realize it because you're in a little bit of a bubble here in North Iowa. Now, some of you are aware of this, you're informed, you understand the secularist agenda, the indoctrination that your kids are receiving regarding gender, um, people declaring that Judeo-Christian ethics are, you know, what's wrong with this country, you know, Black Lives Matter, you went to their website six months ago, two months ago, and it had a page that said, it is our mission to disrupt the Western nuclear family. They believe that the Western nuclear family is like, what's wrong? By the way, that page isn't on their website anymore, I don't know if you know that. Took it down for some reason. How are you reacting to all this stuff that's going on? Are you behaving toward people, uh, you know, like Christ that don't think and believe like you? The command to love your enemies, it works out in very practical ways. What goes on in your mind when you see somebody with a bumper sticker that you don't agree with? You know, coexist. Can't tell you how many Christians I've been around that coexist. Oh, what are you, some new ager? Oh, geez, people can't. You don't even understand anything about religions. They all don't point to the same place. You'd know that if you read a Bible, you know. That attitude's not going to work. That's not what Jesus has in mind. When you see Drag Queen Story Hour advertised at the public library, do you love your enemies? What's going on in your heart when you see Lady Gaga and Queen Latifah on TV talking, you know, about the LGBTQ agenda, taking 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and mixing it in with a gay anthem song, what goes on? Is it love? How about when you drive down the downtown here and you see BLM people gathering, protesting? What do you say? What do your kids hear you say? What look on your face do your kids observe? because they're learning a lot about the looks on your face of how to deal with the life that they're trying to figure out. Jesus says, what do you do more than others? Loving our enemies involves a positive action of the will. It makes us like our Heavenly Father. And it's part of what makes us complete and mature as Christians. God help us. Father, we thank you for your word here today. And um, Lord, may you help us in these challenging times. I pray for anybody here that hasn't given their life to you today, if that's the case. Father, that you would let them know that now that your arms are open wide, if you haven't given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you sense that by his spirit he's calling you today to submit and surrender your life to him and you're going to be set free here today and you're going to be saved, then what I want you to do is admit to your Heavenly Father, yes, Lord, I've broken your laws. Yes, Lord, I've broken, I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, I've failed to give you the honor you deserve. I admit, Lord, that I'm a sinner. 
And the Bible says that you so love the world that you sent your only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but receive everlasting life. And so, Lord, I believe. The Bible also says that if you believe, then you should confess. It says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Anybody that believes in their heart, confesses with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Whosoever does this. If you sense the Holy Spirit working with your conscience today, drawing you to a real relationship with Christ, that's what you do is you admit you're a sinner. Lord, I admit I've broken your laws. You believe in the one that he sent that paid your penalty. And you confess that Jesus is Lord. And whosoever will do this, the Bible says, will be saved. And we thank you for that great truth. In Jesus' name, amen.